welcome to the Gifted Ed Podcast. We are your hosts, Angel Van Howe, Gifted Coordinator and SCL Facilitator, and Megan McCarthy, Social Worker. We are grateful for the opportunity to share this space with you today as we talk about the complexities of giftedness. So let's get started. Today is a special edition episode as it will feature a recording from our ACS Family Speaker Series. The Family Speaker Series is new this school year and its purpose is to provide support and education for families on a variety of topics that all relate to giftedness. Our November speaker was Dr. Ann Weller. She is the owner of Plum Tree Child and Adolescent Psychology located in St. Charles, Illinois. During the presentation, Dr. Weller explored how executive functioning presents itself in gifted children. In her presentation to the ACS community, she introduces concepts and scope of executive functioning, a broad term for the brain functions that help us execute daily tasks and a skill set that is often tied to success in school. Dr. Weller discusses fluid reasoning, mental flexibility, attentional ability, impulse control, processing speed, and perseverance, and the struggles some gifted children have in these areas. Please enjoy our event with Dr. Ann Weller. Thank you. Hi, thanks for coming. The topic is executive functions, and I imagine that's not the first time you've heard the term. This topic could be arranged in any number of fashions. I think this seven uh, format is uh, helpful. So you'll see impulse control, emotional control, flexible thinking, working memory, attention, motivation, planning, and organization. Um, so we'll be moving through all of these. And I, what's most important to keep in mind, and particularly when we think about gifted kids, is that these are all in the purview of the frontal lobe of the brain. And so to that extent, they're limited. And so even if you've got a child who has an IQ four or five years advanced, their neurology is still chronologically age-appropriate. And so where you'll see challenges is, is where they're looking either age-appropriate or sometimes younger, but it looks very different because they're so bright. So how we talk about these is the behaviors associated with them. So specifically, we talk about the behaviors that help us get things done. And when we look about the executive functions, it's helpful to liken them as tools. Um, and to extend this analogy further, you can consider that um, each function of a tool uh, is effective and good. So for example, flexible thinking is effective if it helps us solve problems. But where it gets confusing, particularly with gifted kids, is knowing the difference between an effective tool and then a tool that's being well used. So for example, a hammer is an effective tool for hammering in a nail, uh, but it's also effective in breaking a mirror. Like, it's a good tool, but is it, is it being used well? And there's your challenge for the executive function kids. If we look at, for example, flexible thinking, this is a great tool to think about moves in chess, but it's also a great tool to think about why you're sneaking uh, snacks into the bedroom. Um, so when we look at the executive functions, they all fall within a value system. And kids will employ them just as we do in service of their goals, which might not be consistent with ours. So as adults, we value efficiency, measurable and goal-directed tasks, doing things in a certain way, social status, tidiness, clear purpose, tradition, and routine. But kids um, value attending to things that might be a bit different, like play, exploration, deep dives into topics of their own interest, immediate resolution of emotional distress, following their own internal biological clocks rather than a schedule that's mapped over a regular clock, 
So again, looking at these all through the value system, you can help determine whether or not your child has a problem or if they're just uh, weaponizing their skill in a way that's not consistent with what you'd like. Um, before I advance the slides, I'll ask for your own mental flexibility. This is one arbitrary way to separate them, but because they all come from the frontal lobe, they blur into each other. So you'll hear me hitting some of the same topics on different slides. So these bullet points are, of course, the behaviors uh, associated with good impulse control. So it's evident in a calm body, patience in social situations, following instructional, cultural, social rules, awaiting information, and using appropriate caution. With impulse control, we will walk smack dab into the way that different executive functions are used. So um, as a strict definition, we say how long we can wait before acting, and why do we wait? Because there's a benefit to waiting. Over the holiday season, there's snacks everywhere. And if I don't follow uh, my control, I'll eat them. But then, of course, I know that I'll feel psychologically and physically not good. And so the benefit to waiting there is obvious to me. As a younger kid, I never was uh, sensitive to that stuff, and your kids might not be either. So again, it, with their executive functions, the impulse control is whether or not they see a benefit to waiting. This is, this is interesting, and I think this is where, where you'll be wondering, because you might not have uh, uh, under-controlled kids. You might have over-controlled kids but it's still related to impulse control. So many gifted kids have a personality style that's maladaptively over-controlled, even to the point of being obsessive-compulsive. So such a temperament like that is characterized by being rule-bound, resistant to uh, accepting any help, apprehension to any new things, a need for structure and an order, a conviction that there's a right way to do things, and even a low bodily awareness of their sensations. And um, maladaptive overcontrol extends into the emotional domain, leading to ex um, extreme restriction over their feelings. So overcontrolled people uh, have a high threat, threat sensitivity, and they're inclined to perceive danger even in novel situations and ambiguous situations. These kids work hard to minimize the chances that they'll face surprise. So understand in a psychological point of view, under control and over control are not two ends of the same spectrum. Control in a psychological sense uh, is not one dimensional, it's not a single spectrum. Instead, under control and over control have distinct biological sources and behavioral components. So a kid can be both under controlled and over controlled. Uh, so, in fact, it, it's interesting to know there's a, in uh, psychology a trifecta of ADHD, which is attention de deficit disorder. OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and tics. And we think, well, that makes no sense, right? Because we have the vision of ADHD, and this is a kid who's all over the place. And the op op opposite, is, of course, is OCD. But they occur together in the same kid quite often. Uh, and what we can think of it as is being stimulus-bound. And that's really the idea of the impulse control. So uh, with, an impulsive, uh, with an impulsive kid, they're bound to whatever's coming up in the moment and following it. With compulsions, right, if there's an OCD, for example, the, the need to have everything straight, they're bound to that and they must complete this task before they can move on. So you can have both, and kids do have both. And really, that's a difficult place to be because if your temperament is over-controlled, but your body is under-controlled, you're in a continual struggle for that. So the model for uh, over-controlled kids is, when in doubt, apply more control. So the gifted child often insists on control somewhat by being demanding. Um, but it also explains why all the teachers say like they're great at school and, and, and 
coaches and everything, friends, they're great, but when they get home, they're a disaster for you, right? Because they're, they're good because the environment can contain them, and in fact, school is great for these kids. Over-controlled kids do really well with school because of the structure, because of the schedule. Um, their dutifulness, their social obligation binds them to propriety when they're out and about. So um, the regular schedule, as I said, the clear goals, the unambiguous social roles, which is really important too for these gifted kids, um, especially the teacher-child dynamic, helps them meet those implicit needs for control. And as parents, this is challenging, right? Because society values self-discipline. And so rule-following kids are often rewarded for that very quality. So when we understand that these habits and routines and schedules are all really helpful for them because they decrease the need for them to exert energy to control. Well, this makes sense too, right? I'll go back to snacks. If after the holidays I decide I want to stop snacking, the best first thing is to keep all the snacks out of my house. Well, then I don't have to exert willpower. It's the same thing with your kids. Under structure, they don't have to consider each moment what they're going to do next, so they can limit willpower. One of my favorite uh, anecdotes, uh, when uh, President Obama was retiring, and he, who was his chief of staff? Chicago guy, wasn't he? Yes. So they said, uh, what are you going to do when you retire? And he said, well, Ram and I are going to uh, go to Hawaii. We're going to open up a T-shirt stand, and we're going to sell one color, white. It's going to be one, sh one size, medium. Just going to like reduce any chance to need to make any kind of decision. And that's what comes to mind here. So structure um, eliminates the, the need for control. And so what you'll see, especially so with these kids, as I said, the over-controlled kids, um, dramatic displays of emotions like temper tantrums are going to occur at home, but not in public. Um, over-controlled people abhor public displays of emotion that might attract unwanted attention. So they're highly capable of inhibiting an overt behavioral response in public, but your um, outbursts at home, those are like emotional leakages. So um, back to the bullet points. Um, they're mostly, mostly self-explanatory. There is a significant overlap between ADHD and giftedness to the extent that uh, a misdiagnosis is a big risk um, for that. Uh, and there are two ways that gifted kids resemble ADHD kids without there being overlap. So if you're, uh, forgive me for saying, but one thing is they, they act stupidly. <laughs> so. Gifted kids, and remember, their judgment lags behind their intellect. And so there's neurological evidence that they are, their emotional intelligence is slower to develop than their IQ. So, for instance, an intellectually gifted child who's enthusiastic about the topic will interrupt an adult nonstop. That's different than a child with ADHD who interrupts because they can't control that, even under the best of circumstances. So one way they're alike is that they're both can act kind of stupidly. Um, secondly, is those Dabrowski uh, overexcitabilities, which if you don't know about, you certainly Google that. So with gifted kids, they have the overexcitabilities that experience, uh, that go across a range of issues, including intellectual, imagination, behavioral, emotional, all the ways in which they look bigger and faster and more animated than their peers. Um, it also leads to power struggles with adults. <laughs> um, they want to know why. They want to know why they're doing this. Why, why are we studying this? I might never need this. Uh, they like to know the rationale behind things. And so 
children with ADHD are often um, argumentative because that's that's just like stimulating. That that's that's how I stay awake is by engaging in a good parlay. But for gifted kids, they really want to know. Um, they have high activity levels. Sometimes they sleep a lot less and they're restless. Um, and then the difficulty too with gifted kids is adhering to rules and customs and traditions that they don't agree with. <laughs> um, a final comment, just because I listed ticks up there. So the difference between ticks and um, compulsive behaviors. So when you look at OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive behaviors, those are ritualistic and purposeful. And so, for example, it might be, as I said, straightening things, or, or if I touch one ear, I've got to touch the other side. Um, and, and they're a way to decrease anxiety. My poor son, I bring him up whenever I talk about OCD. Um, so an example of an OCD ritual might be, uh, uh, I think it was six or seven, we were driving in the car and he's got his feet up. Uh, like, well, why are your feet up? Yeah, uh, if I put them down, we're gonna crash. But yeah, OCD has that magical thinking, right? If I do something, uh, then it's gonna prevent some awful other thing. So just as a distinguisher between the two. Um, so I've, Again, this is sort of arbitrarily put together, but let me think of five ways that we make that we go through a decision-making process. So the first is registering stimuli, and that's just like, did you see me make that movement, or did you hear the the, the sound of the microphone screeching? So registering stimuli, kids are your kids are fast at that; they register almost immediately. And in fact, there can be um, even a, a too fast of a register where things are too bright and too scratchy and too loud, and so. To the extent that they're registering all the time and not acclimating to the noises and, and sensations around them, they can be pretty impulsive, right? When we're uncomfortable, our self-control lags. Um, we aren't ready to behave, let alone learn. So the second step is, when you see the thing, do you correctly identify that? But that means you have to be patient. Um, because if I say to my mom, uh, can we go to the store? And she starts with, nah, and I tantrum right away. I'm like, I know she's on her way to saying no. But what she was going to say was, not right now, uh, but later this afternoon, yes. But I have to wait for all the information on that. And so the correctly identifying the stimuli is waiting for that to come in. And of course, that's in a small snippet. But uh, information plays out real time in, in social situations where you have to wait to see what the other person was thinking. So your kids are really fast, but sometimes they're jumping to conclusions that just aren't, aren't a fit. And it's a liability in that way. Wait until the teacher finishes instructions before you start working. She might not have been going where you thought she was going with that. Um, wait until your parents finish to explain why you can't go to the zoo today. Look over your work carefully. So then we generate possible solutions. And so here again is the value system. So um, if I'm in a game of soccer and I see my teammate fall, um, if, if my goal is to be the guy, the girl, who scores the goal, I'm stepping right over that one and going to score, right? But if, if my goal is more like, that's my friend, and I, I don't care about the game, I'm gonna get my, help my friend, I'm gonna help my friend up, right? So I'm generating solutions in a moment, and your kids are really fast at this. They've got, they've got ha life happening in real time, and they generate how they're gonna start to go about solving this. Um, this is where you can look at, like, so they might be really good at impulse control, but their values might be different. So for might be, um, for example, if my, if my goal as a kid is to make an adult stop talking, I will lie. So that, that's not an impulse control. I'm not lying necessarily because I can't control myself. It's because my goal is to get the adult to go away. 
Um, if my goal is to decrease anxiety, I might refuse to get out of the car when I get to a new place. If my goal is to play with friends, I'm going to rush through my homework. So we can't say, oh, he's impulsive, he can't sit and do homework. Uh, maybe he can, but the value is different. The value is different for that. Um, if my goal is to show my parents that I'm mad, it doesn't matter how good of a suggestion you make, I don't want it, right? So the, um, the editing process, then, is where we select an action that's best designed to contend with the demands of the situation as we see it. So we pick something, but then here's the final piece, and really the important piece as far as impulse control. I've got my plan. Can I execute it? So like, I, I really want to get along with my friend. But if I don't have the ability to uh, smile when I say, hey, that's a really, I don't like that idea at all. Can we do something else? Then, then the, best well, uh, the best laid plans will fall foul. And so when you look at also the social skills necessary to implement the very good decisions that you have. So um, if I blurt out comments in the middle of class, it, um, this is where things go haywire. Lining up for recess, shifting from a non-preferred to a preferred task, or when a peer makes a mistake on a group project. We can get to this later if we want to, but the idea is to backcast your kids and see where in the steps, uh, where in that process it might have gone wrong. Emotional control falls under the purview of the frontal lobe. Isn't that something? Because, of course, it, it was designed by evolution. Uh, everything on our body, in our body, of our bodies is from evolution. And so we've got an ev uh, emotional system that's 300,000 years old, and it's very good. And the function of emotion is to tell you, are you on your way to meeting your goal? And if you're feeling good, it means you're on your way to meeting your goal. And when you feel badly, it means you're not. And so each feeling is um, designed to elicit an adaptive response so that you keep moving toward your goal. So, for example, anger is appropriate when your goal is blocked. And so that's justified emotion. Um, and the justified behavior is uh, something that removes the blocks. If someone steals my crayons, that person is blocking my goal of drawing as I want to. So demanding the, cr the crayon back is justified to remove that block. So fear, of course, it comes up in dangerous situations. Leaving that situation is justified. If an unfamiliar adult approaches me in public, I'm going to move away and find mom. Sadness comes up when I've lost something important. So taking time to reflect on how I can fill that void is a thing to do. Of course, happiness means move on straight ahead as well. My point is that emotions, of course, are normal. Uh, I envision green as being an emotionally regulated person where you come up with uh, the challenges of daily life and you deal with them in a normal way. Uh, and so it takes a fair amount to get upset, and, and then you have your emotion appropriate to the situation, and you manage it, and you move on with your day. Where gifted kids are often struggling is with that very thing, emotion, emotion regulation. So they're quick to leave baseline, like the first instant of a frustration, and then they're slow to return. And slow to return might be an hour or two hours, a day, a couple of days. So leaving in a moment and then slow to return is, is sort of a... Um, not a stereotype of a gifted child, but certainly a liability. I'm going to go off notes for a little bit. Because the, 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 what we want to do as parents, particularly because our kids are so well-spoken and bright, is we want to talk to them about the logic of how unwell they're being or, or how illogical they're being. And they're not available to that. When they're upset, they're not available to your good ideas. And so 
what we can talk about later is the first strategy when a child is upset is to go right away to help co-regulate with them so they calm down and you can then dispense your advice whether or not it will be taken, I don't know. Uh, so as I said, I want to get to a point here. The, they're quick to leave baseline and slow to return. Even a single item on their to-do list can be overwhelming for them. Um, they might fret for ages. Like if the task is go, go make your bed, they'll, they'll tantrum on that. And then they'll do a job and they'll, they'll remain upset afterwards, even after the bed is made. Uh, they'll, re they'll remain upset an hour afterwards because how dare you, you asked. So as parents, if you find yourself walking on eggshells at home, it's because your kids are not emotionally regulated. Because it's easier just to make the bed yourself rather than tolerating them for an hour tantruming about that. And so if you go about making their world so they don't have to do preferred tasks, then it's easier in the short term for you, but in the long term, it's a disaster. Um, a recent study showed that one in five kids at Ivy League colleges self-injures. One in five kids you bump into at Harvard has slashes all over their arm. That's distress tolerance. That is, how do I manage my emotions when I have to do something I don't like or when an important goal has been blocked? And so I think what we get wrong as parents lately, because we want to do so well and we want to protect them, is that we protect them from failure and we protect them from frustration. And it's, I could wax poetic, but I think it's going to be a larger idea that, you know, we're meant to be happy. I don't know that we're meant to be happy. I think if we do whatever we want, whenever we want, it's not a, a goal for a happy life at all. Um, and so we want to be honest with them for their, for their shortcomings as well as their strengths. So yeah, I see, I see um, um, Devin. He is a little bit better at soccer than you. Yeah, but I think you're really good at coloring. But yeah, you're right. He's, he is a little better. <gasps> yeah, that's just true. It is. Yeah. No, I, 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 um, I uh, don't think that you treated your friend really nicely. I didn't like you. I wasn't necessarily that proud when you did that. So I hope next time, whoa, give these things. And they'll punish you because they'll overreact. But the skill then is not um, obey mom and dad, make your bed. The skill is not manage your time. The skill is, hey, you've got homework to do. You're really upset. Let's co-regulate and tolerate this. So again, picture them in college. How do you want them to tolerate when they've got things they have to do? Um, so I've, I don't know if I've met any of your particular children, but uh, I'm, I'm involved in Avery Cooney in the process of giving an IQ test as part of them coming on board. These are really benign questions, you know, school-based questions, but I see, I see your kids become flooded with emotion when they think about injustices or, or um, even even uh, ben, uh, benign uh, information. They feel things so exquisitely sensitively. And I can imagine that as an executive function, if you've got to go about the business of just living in life and it's that exquisitely sensitive, that is challenging, tiring too. Okay, so flexible thinking. Um, there's a psychology philosopher, Carl Friston, and so some of this comes from my reading with him, but um, the brain is fascinating. It's an evolutionarily expensive t uh, process. We had to give up a lot to have this. In order to have this brain, we had to have less kids. And our kids needed 18 to 25 years to grow up as a result of that as well. Brains are also metabolically expensive. So although they're just 2% of your body weight, they use 20% of your calories. And so uh, the brain in evolution is really super efficient with energy. And the best way to conserve energy from the brain's point of view is to reduce surprise. That's the, the free energy principle. Uh, any surprise we come across represents new data that we have to evaluate, make decisions about, 
and modify. We have to think. So actually our brains don't really like to do that kind of thinking. There's lots of good, good uh, data coming out of neuroscience. You know, our, our, our mind is sailing through the world moment to moment, uh, coming across information. And information is, is any ingredient that you need to distinguish between alternatives. Am I speaking English or German? Is that a banana or is that an orange? Whatever I come across, I need to decide. And make quick work of it, too, because I've got things to do. So the brain is constantly uh, categorizing and deciding before you're aware of it what's in its world. Um, it's already been framed. Milliseconds before you register information, uh, it's already being acted on your system. So indeed, one of the most startling findings about neuroscience is that your consciousness is often the last to know. Your senses are capturing information by your relationship with it. I could go on and on. The idea is that flexible thinking is really hard, and our brain is designed not to do that. And, and, and that's even on a moment-to-moment -moment thing. You know, We think about thinking of abstract ideas in different ways, but even thinking about different things, uh, small things. So for example, if I work with an autistic child, and I say, like, hey, it's a remote, but it could also be like a sword. No, it's a remote. Right? It, even a simple task like that. So flexible thinking in a, is effortful, and it's, it's almost like me asking you at this moment, stand up, run five miles. No. No, I don't want to. It, so it takes a, it takes a lot. Um, and so where we see uh, uh, gifted kids uh, lock in is when you ask them to be flexible, when it's honestly just cognitively easier to make quicker work of something and not, not change their mind. This is oft, often why they're not available not willing to take help. So gifted kids uh, often see things in black and white. So you'll hear teachers talk about, for example, the growth mindset, the idea that um, every, we could call it a mistake, but it's really just as life is giving us information, we take in real time to make a decision about the next thing we need to do. But black and white thinking for your kids is, if there's an error, that's a mistake, and, and that's intolerable. And so helping them reframe that's really important. Yeah, the, 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 the right way. Like, we do it this way, and then we do it this way. No, we always, on Sunday, we always go to the store first, and then we go out for breakfast. We don't change it like that. Um, and again, remember, if we're, we're minimizing surprise, the idea is that I need to keep my world as contained as possible because it's taking a lot as a gifted kid to move through the world. Working memory, I, um, when your kids did an IQ test to become admitted to the Avery Kumi School, we measured five domains, and working memory was one of them. I don't, it's a misnomer. I don't like the way it's named. Um, what it really is is how we're holding time and real information. So as I'm speaking, you've held, hopefully, if you're attending, if your value system is intact, you, um, you're tracking the last 10 to 20 seconds. You're hearing me now, and you're, you're making predictions about where I'm going to go. Um, and if I'm kind to your brain, I won't be surprising you. I'll do, I'll do things that you can predict. Working memory is responsible for reading a room, for example. So. Um, I, can, I can watch faces, but I can also see how social groups are interacting. Um, I can keep in mind what I want to do as, as things are coming up in real time. When we think about working memory, that's when the waiter comes over and reads the specials. Can you remember what he said the first time by the time he gets to the end of it? Um, working memory lasts about 15 to 30 seconds. Um, of all the skills that we are talking about today, this one is more immune to personality quirks than others. So for instance, working memory is relatively independent of extroversion or introversion, neuroticism or happiness, approach or avoidance or conscientiousness. Um, it's still related to values, however. Um, it's deployed on information sets that we value. If I'm not interested um, in something, I'm not going to spend time interfacing it with it. So 
at Thanksgiving, if my uncle starts to talk about football scores, my working memory is withdrawn. I don't care. Um, so your kids might withdraw their working memory on tasks, on non-preferred tasks, but that, not, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a, a poor working memory. Um, working memory is a source of creativity. Um, you might consider it to be the yang to the yin of IQ. So raw IQ is one side of the coin, and then working memory is the other. Intelligence is the stuff we know and the skills we have, and working memory is um, how we interface with new information as it arises in real time. And so studies are suggesting that working memory is a, perhaps an even better measure of how well a child can learn than raw IQ. Some things put aside. But the idea is that working memory is really important. Um, I've placed an image of this 10-year-old Italian boy who's richer than many of us. Um, he, he was recently um, featured in New York Times and Forbes, among other publications. His paintings sell uh, up, up to like $100,000. Um, he, he, he does works that are being compared to Picasso. Um, so how is he using working memory? How is creativity being used there? So imagine him as an artist. He's got uh, in his mind what's happening on his canvas. He's got his paints ready, and he's got in his mind where he wants to go. And he's living in this 30-second window, probably for hours at a time, and that's where creativity flourishes. Attention is, of course, related to that. Um, but we distinguish it from working memory um, by way of volition. So attention is a flashlight. It's yours to direct wherever you want, ideally. And you can point it as long as you like. And the working memory is sort of like the span that it covers. Um, attention has a colloquial meaning that, that just really isn't helpful. Um, so I'm speaking about attention in the psychological sense. Um, so, for example, when we talk about a child with ADHD, there's the, this idea that it's a child who can't pay attention. It's not it at all. What attention is is really the ability to regulate where you put your attention. And so what we'll see with kids with ADHD, for example, sometimes they're so hyper-focused that they will wet their pants playing video games. They can't read They can't read the signal, they're so locked in. Or other times at school they won't be able to pay attention at all. So it really is the ability to regulate where you put your attention. Um, so we call that stimulus bonding. And that goes back to what I said earlier with OCD. If you're bound to the stimulus, the degree to which you can separate it, hey, it's time to, like, yeah, your, your drawing is great, but it's 11 p.m., you gotta go to bed. Can you unbind from that? And, and some of your kids are probably really challenged with that. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't, I'm not suggesting it's ADHD, but I'm suggesting that, that, that volition is where they struggle. So gifted kids can toggle between the extremes. As a, as a clinical extreme, we think about autistic kids. So, um, by definition, you know, if we think about, um, what humans like, things or people, whether or not this is politically correct is just true. Women tend to like people and men tend to like things. So when you look at like the careers, most of us, quite a, men, a lot of men nurses, quite a, quite a lot of women engineers, but at the ends of the spectrum, there's a lot more women in the people industry and a lot more men. If we think about autism, for example, they're interested in things, the Silicon Valley. And so when we say their attention is regulated, if, I, if I'm sitting across from an autistic child, it doesn't, it's not interested in me, he's more interested in the thing. So we say, well, is that ADHD? Well, that's attention on a different value system, right? Incidentally, they do co-occur, uh, autism and ADHD, and, and not uncommonly, but uh, that's, a, that's a helpful way of thinking how attention is also a value-based system. 
I hope you'll forgive the monikers that I gave these. Um, how, how gifted kids can appear to have ADHD. So I've, they could be bored, obsessive, daydreamer, loner, intense, ornery. <laughs> um, so work, work is enjoyable when we can regulate our attention. When we get lost in flow, whether that's you know, at work or and talking with a friend or a workout or in a show, um, that's when our attentional system is beautifully optimized. So this is, again, how, how we can see attention go sideways for gifted kids. They're, they're bored in a world that moves too slowly for them, of course. Uh, they're, we talked about, about the obsessions. They're locked into their obsessions. They're lost in their imagination when they should be attending to math. Um, loner, yeah, I put that as well. So they, they are, they're not necessarily attending to other people as we would expect them to. They're intense, they're excited and, and enthusiastic, and so you can't finish the sentence because they're, they're interrupting you. And then ornery, I talked about that before. They're inclined to argue and negotiate the collapsed power hierarchies. They come in the room with me and they let me know that they're boss. Planning and organization. Um, so I introduced the, this presentation tonight uh, that executive functions are the set of skills that enable us to get stuff done. And planning and organizational skills are self-monitoring. So we zoom in and zoom out of perspectives. I'm aware that I have only a short, a short amount of your very valued attention. And I've got an I'll watch on the clock. I've also set it up so I've got my lovely assistants to remind me when I'm out of track. But what I'm doing is I'm zooming in, but then I'm zooming out because I'm trying to keep everything in place. Um, so this is the, these are the skills most anchored to time, obviously. Um, cognitive psychologists, and actually more interestingly, uh, astrophysicists lately, are talking about two different kinds of time. So one is the clock time, but the other is a psychological time that it, it relates to working memory. The idea that when you're really engrossed in something, you can lose time, or a really boring uh, class or lecture might, might seem like it goes a long time. Children with, with, uh, who are gifted they, they tend to struggle with that felt sense of time. And so they'll be, they'll be surprised that they've been reading for three hours. It didn't, it didn't feel like that at all. Or they'll be surprised that they're hungry because they haven't eaten. Or a, you know, a, a non-preferred task can feel like it goes on for a long time. I wanted to say something here um, about perfectionism. Because, of course, if time management is, is sabotaged by perfectionism, and we've heard that engineering phrase, perfect is the enemy of good. Because so long as you need something to be perfect, it will never be finished. And I wanted to speak specifically about girls again. So girls are more perfectionistic. Um, and of course, boys can be too. But we see this a lot with little girls, and they're rewarded for that. They're rewarded for having the prettiest handwriting and the most well-thought-out arguments, and that their slide on the PowerPoint is the best done. And we reward them for that. We, can, we, um, we, quite, we quite like that, and they're eager to do that. Little boys in my experience, are better at getting the thing done. So they know what it takes to get the A, and then they'll get the A. But they don't need to go about spending all the extra time on the fluff that won't be needed to get the A. So where it becomes a liability for our little girls, especially, is as they move into high school and college, they just don't have time to make things perfect. And so my challenge is for you, of those of you with daughters, to help them think about is, you know, opportunity cost, but is the effort you're exerting actually worth any of the outcome. You've got to, you're going to stay up for another hour finishing this slide. It's not going to make any difference in your grade. So how do you, how do you uh, use your resources most effectively? All kids can benefit from that. I'm just suggesting that 
Um, girls tend to be rewarded for that a lot. Most of the points here um, are really amenable to your suggestions. So academic timer or academic planners, timers, work plans. Um, it's really handy to build routines around weekly uh, and daily uh, homework schedules, plotting things out visually, having your calendar set aside. So like you've got this this due on Friday. How do we break that up into smaller pieces? This is where all of your experience and all of your um, know-how can be really helpful for them. So moving on to Magnus Carlsen. Uh, he's the Grandmaster Chess uh, champion. He's, there's a quite, I mean, he'll remind you of your kid, there's a quite good biography uh, or um, um, movie on him um, uh, of his childhood. Anyway, so he, he's the grand Grandmaster. And it was about a month ago, it was in all the papers. He, he walked out of the tournament because he said, that guy's cheating, and that guy was cheating. Cheating in chess, of all places. M my point here is that you can plan and organize really well, but it, it depends on your value system. And so you can plan to uh, beat a grandmaster uh, a champion. So again, thinking about, is your child uh, motivated to quickly finish a non-preferred task? Well, then you might not see the planning. Um, are they motivated to feel comfortable in their energy-filled body? So you want them to sit down and finish something, but they, they, they have to work out some energy. Then they're not going to show the planning and organization. Um, is their point to get their is their goal to get their point across, and so interrupt you as they're talking? Motivation. Um, so motivation, uh, I think, it's the easiest to spot when it's not working. Motivation, of course, is the force behind getting activated to do what you need to or want to do. We, we all harness motivation most days um, by doing things we enjoy and then um, complying with things we don't enjoy as well. Um, I got ahead of myself, obviously. I wanted to say it, but I'll say it again. Um, the idea that we're, that we're meant to be happy, I think that, that, that's, that's where our kids are having struggles, is that they're meant to be happy moment to moment. And so a non-preferred task is by definition, a task that doesn't necessarily, that they're not going to get to. Some, some people, some kids, uh, are rewarded by checking things off a list. And we think about reward, that, that's, that's regulated by the, the dopaminergic system, the, the feel-good feel good chemicals that we get from completing things. And that, I'm editing as I go in real time, that system, it is really easily hijacked by, so depression, by definition, that is the motivation is the thing you need. And even though you know you should do this and you would feel better, you don't have the motivation to uh, engage in that action. Um, anxiety hijacks motivation because no matter what I look at, it's something awful is going to happen, so I cannot get motivated to get out of the car to get to soccer practice, for example. Um, so the good thing to think about here with your kids is um, no mood-dependent decisions. It doesn't matter if you feel like doing it. You just you have to do it, and it's not fun. But like I don't. I never enjoy emptying the dishwasher. I just do it. So I, mom, this is what I do. I, I usually like I put on my headphones and I, I cue up my two favorite songs and I'm going to finish that dishwasher by the time the two favorite songs are done. I, I'm telling my kids, how do I get up and, and get moving in the day? I don't want to. I don't want to make your breakfast. I don't want to. But I love how you, I love watching you eat because it makes you feel so happy. So that's, that's what gets me going on it. So think out loud. You all day long harness your motivation for stuff you don't want to do because you're an adult. You can tell them, think out loud about how you're doing that. Um, the other thing to, to keep in mind and to um, educate them about it, motivation often follows action. So I think, for example, like 
No one wants to get up and go to the gym. But once you're there, it's okay. And so as many, ob- as many activities as you can have on habit, that's better. I'm not going to even decide if I want to. I just get there, and then I, and then I can feel motivated to go. So it's the cart before the horse. Um, motivation can be elusive, even for the healthiest of us. We think about all the challenges that kids have been through lately, not, not least the pandemic, of course. And so we see, you know, motivation. There's, there's, a, there's been a um, 50% increase in depression, anxiety, and suicide and self-injury. Um, I'm one of many, many psychologists on, on my block, and we have four-month waiting lists. Kids are really unhappy. And so that, that challenge of, yeah, you got to do it if you don't feel like it, and then knowing as a parent when to back off on that. So we say, as a rule, if, if your kids are feeling more motivated, then increase demands that they do things. If they're, if they're not feeling as well, then you can decrease a little bit. But it's in real time, so it's, it's a moving target. Um, but be wary, though, of permitting, uh, permitting non-motivated behaviors to continue. So once, once you let them stay home from school once, the, day, the following day, it's harder to get them to go to school. I don't know that many social workers are fans of this um, mental health days. You get five now in Illinois. It's a great idea. But what we see is the kids who take those take five, 10, 20, 30, 40. So um, my, my point being here is that we need to help kids in such a way that doesn't encourage them to uh, um, avoid in the future. Got just about maybe five or 10 minutes. I'll finish this slide, and then we open up for discussion. But I wanted to point out um, uh, how big is the problem. So if, if I've mentioned anything today or even before you came in here, if you were worried about any of the executive functions with your kids, this is sort of how a behavioral scientist would go about deciding whether or not it's a problem. Um, so first, um, be careful about defining the problem. So as a behavioralist, uh, think, think of being um, Jane Goodall. Think, think of your child as an animal and describe describe what you see. So, for example, um, uh, I've got uh, Evan is lazy. He doesn't do his 20 minutes of nightly reading. Now, that's, that's horrible, horrible behavioral. Hor- I, I never know how a person is feeling, so I, I, I move away from that right away. I know that I know that people want to do well, and so if they're struggling in something, it's there's it's a skills deficit, and so it's not lazy. Um, character uh, flaws are almost never evident when we look at executive functions. If they could do it, they would. Um, so we can describe it instead of, uh, he's lazy, we could say, um, Evan starts reading only after I've threatened him loss of privileges, and this results in family stress constantly. Especially for your gifted kids, uh, if, if you suspect a behavior as a problem, don't rely on their self-descriptions. They are not reliable reporters. They're very smart, they're articulate, they're verbal, they know a lot of words. They, they have lower insight than you might imagine. So like, I'm not doing math because it's boring. I don't know if it's boring or not. All I know is you don't do it. Why, I might say it's boring because I, I can't stand for you, Dad, to know that I, like, I don't know how to do this math at all. So it's boring. Oh, well, it's boring. Well, I'm going to go to the teacher and we're going to figure this out. So. Um, don't, I, I don't think they're reliable reporters. And if you go to behavior, you can, you can get a clear sense of what's happening. Second, check your own expectations. Um, I've given an example here. Evan's older sister used to read an hour a day on her own. We never even had to ask her. She's abnormal, like wonderfully abnormal, but comparing Evan to his sister, that's not a fair expectation. And so the problem might be your own, your own expectation of that. 
Um, remember also the asynchronous development of the gifted child. So you've got you know, verbal, yeah, they're six years advanced for IQ, but then socially, maybe they're like two years behind. Emotionally, there's like one, one year behind. So we can see that they're so smart that they create artificially high demands from you. Maybe, that, maybe that's age appropriate for a six-year-old not to want to sit and do um, 20 minutes of reading. Um, third, um, notice when and where there actually is a problem. Is it just at school? Is it just when they're hungry? Is it just before soccer? Is it only with mom? Is it only reading? So look at the accommodations you can make across settings. Because if it's a problem, it's a, it's a problem across many settings um, and over time. Um, speaking of patterns, as a, as a psychologist, I'm always looking for patterns. You should do the same. So look for severity, scope, and degree to which the behavior interferes with functioning. So for example, um, does it happen daily, weekly, monthly? How long does it last? Is it two minutes of arguing before reading? Is it 10 minutes of arguing? Is it an hour? How intense is the defiance? Is it like just an eye roll and like a smart comment? Or is it you know, raging and throwing things at the door? Um, how does it impact us? Are we fighting every night? Like, I didn't want to be this mom. I didn't want to be the mom. Like, I'm, I'm pretty easy going, but you're making me yell. Well, then family dynamics are, are, are uh, interfered with there. If you think it's a problem, then you talk to yeah the, um, the school and other parents to see what and to check your to check your expectations and ask if they can support in any way, and then uh, you, you're always welcome, of course, to talk to a pediatrician or a psychologist or somebody else to get an evaluation to see if there's a clinically significant problem. Again, if I were a real doctor, like I could take your blood and I could tell you what was actually happening in your body. But the best I can do is, as a psychologist, I can just look at how you behave and how you function, and so. When we look at the umbrella of executive functioning, I pulled out planning and organization as its own separate manifestation of something that's happening in, in the frontal lobe. And so um, planning and organization, and stop me as soon as I veer too far where you're going for, for your question. Planning and organization for, for a gifted child is everything from um, when I wake up in the morning, um, can I get dressed on time? Can I... Do I get lost in the shower? Mom has to uh, knock on the door, remind me to do things um, over and over. Do I have the stuff in the backpack that I need by the time I go to school? Is my homework done? Did I get everything signed, right? When I get to school, do I put my stuff away or is it a disaster? Am I the last kid to find the thing in the desk and the teacher's already moved on to the next piece? So organization of things, organization of time. Um, so it's like, hey, you got homework, it's Sunday, it's 4 p.m., remember you got homework, yeah, yeah, it's fine. But then all of a sudden, 7 p.m., oh, I have so much homework, yeah, but that's organizing your time. And so organization with stuff and with time, and planning large, well, depending on your kid's age, larger moments across time, but even, even their day, their hour, their 30 minutes, however they're going to execute what they need to get done. That's why I keep going back to value system is, do they care that they're the last kid getting the thing out of the desk? I don't, I don't know. Do they care that? Do they care that you have to remind them five times to get out of the shower? Right? Um, I'll take I'll take a leap on this because th this is actually the area where you, as a parent, I think can have a lot of effect. If you're nagging your kid about how to how to keep track of time, show them the skill on how to do that, how how to make visual schedules for them. If you're sick of going in and reminding them to get out of the shower, set a timer for them. When it comes to keeping them on track, so you've got you've got 30 minutes and you've got 10 math problems. So I'm going to set the timer. Let's do 
Um, let's do two minutes, and I want you to get two problems done uh, in that time. So you can give them a visual time timer. Those are really nice. So they can watch time elapse. And that is the end of the show. Thank you. We want to thank you for joining us in this space today. We hope you have gained valuable insights about the role that executive functioning plays in your child's education and why it can be so complex. We hope that the tools and strategies shared by Dr. Weller will help you to better understand and address your child's executive functioning needs at home and at school. Please subscribe to the Gifted Ed podcast to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Stay tuned for our next episode that continues to unpack the complexities of giftedness. Thank you.